Mark Ormrod, Royal Marine Commando, tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's also Britain's first triple amputee since World War I. He's an Inktivist Games athlete. He's possibly one of the most inspiring human beings that you'll ever have the pleasure of meeting or hearing. He's also a best-selling author. Put bluntly, there's nothing the man can't do. He just puts his mind to something and gets it done. So it's my absolute pleasure and privilege to have Mark Ormrod as a guest on the Coppuccino Podcast. It's that time again, so grab yourself a cup of joe and get ready for the cappuccino with Constable Brian. Man who uses 300% more energy than someone without prosthetics, off, so he has to eat twice as much as most of us. And, and I quote, it was my ambition to become a martial arts expert and put John Claude Van Damme out of a job. Don't laugh, I'm serious. By the time I grew up, I reckoned he'd be too old for the movies and I could take over. So very big cure and good morning to Max Ormrod. How are you, buddy? Where did you get that quote from? I don't remember saying that. Right out of that book. <laughs> oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Right, right out of your book. Yep, there we go. So, hey, Mark, we have a speed round that's dedicated to Keanu Reeves because we all know he's from Bill and Ted. He's also John Wick, uh, and he also appears in the best police movie, I think, of all time, which is Speed. So I'm going to give you eight quickfire random questions for you. Are you ready? Let's go. I got it. Uh, my childhood hero was who? Jean-Claude Van Damme. There you go. Uh, the last book I read was what? Uh, Commando Mindset by Ben Williams. Nice. Uh, two songs that are currently on your gym playlist. Eminem, Till I Collapse, and Tupac, Gangster Party. Nice. Uh, what's your brew, or as you would say, uh, your wit of choice? Black Americano, no sugar. There's a man after my own heart, because normally we record this in the police car. Uh, so next time you're down, to, down in New Zealand, I owe you a coffee in the police car. All right. Roger. Roger. Uh, the best action movie of all time is what? Predator. Nice. Uh, who inspires you? Do you know what, right? I get asked this a lot. I know this is a speed round, but I'm going to answer this as quick as I can. Yeah, mate. Anybody, man, woman, or child, who has the balls, the courage of their conviction to go after what they want with no excuses, no bullshit. Magic. Uh, when I say New Zealand, what's the first thing you think of? Rugby. And those all blacks, of course. Yep. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, who plays Marco in the movie? Oh, we still haven't decided yet. We still haven't decided. Who would you, if I could give you anybody, who would you take? Um, I think probably Taron Egerton. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can see it as well. That's all good. Yeah. Okay. Um, what's COVID and lockdown been like for you? How have you coped? I'll tell you what, right? Apart from the homeschooling thing, which I know it sounds like I'm joking, I'm 100% serious, nearly broke me. And I've had a lot of things going on in my life. Yep. that have pushed me to the edge, but homeschooling, and I mean this with all sincerity, I just detested it. But apart from that, when that stopped, I was good, mate. Nice. Do you know what I mean? I just, I, I, I found the good in it. You know, I went and I live by the sea. I went in the sea for the first time in God knows how long. I bought a paddleboard. I learned to meditate. I did all the things that I never get time to do. I caught up with it. 
spent time with my family, fixed all the bits in the house that needed fixing, just did all those things and focused on having all this extra time and what was good about it. Yeah, and yeah. I was fortunate enough. I understand I'm lucky because I have a front and a back garden. I don't live in a high rise apartment block. So I just go out and spend time on my front lawn, which I'd never do before, you know, <laughs> and speak to the neighbors from a distance. Yeah. Nice work. Um, Afghanistan, for those of us that haven't, haven't been to Afghanistan and look, let's be honest, we probably won't for a long, long time now either. What's it like? Mm. As a country, yeah. as in aesthetically, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. It's just unfortunate the governmental and political systems that are or rather aren't in place that, that make it what it is. You know, if, if that would change, you know, and get dragged into the 21st century, then I'm sure it would be a thriving place again. And I remember I actually saw some pictures of what it looked like in the 40s. Mm. And it looked incredible. Mm. Yeah, with people walking up and down, there were shops and high streets and people were smiling everywhere. And, you know, get it back to that, you know, but get it to thrive again. Yeah. Uh, now, given what's gone on the last six to eight weeks, things have changed quite a lot. Have you got any mm-hmm. thoughts on that or do you remain po- politically neutral? You know what? My, my honest answer is, and this is what I try to do with a lot of s- stuff that I think would negatively affect me is, is I just don't focus my attention on it. Yeah, It's way too big for to be anything that I can control. Yeah. You know, and, and I get people ask me this a lot. I had the media hounded me for like the best part of five days, leaving me answer phone messages, offering me money to give comments. And I'm just like, I don't want to occupy my headspace with it. No. You know, it's just, I'm just going to move. I've moved on. Nice. Now you are a very proud and rightly so Royal Marine Commando. Uh, if the Mark Ormrod of today spoke at your passing out ceremony to the Mark Ormrod of yesteryear, what do you think he would think about you coming to chat to him? Oh, wow. Um, there you go. I finally got one you haven't been asked yet. No, that's a great question. I honestly think if, if I could go back and meet myself back then, I, I would be proud of where I am. I'd be shocked, obviously, yeah. you know, at yeah. what has happened. But I'd be proud that I had what it took to pull through to make the best of my situation and to apply that that commando mindset, you know, not just to my career, but to my life holistically. Mm. Mm. Okay. So after studying business studies, you're watching Predator, surprisingly enough. You decide, amongst <laughs> other things, you're going to go and join the army. But on the advice of your dad, and uh, who lets you know you've got an uncle who's a Marine, uh, mm-hmm. you, you decide to go and become a Marine instead and a recruiting officer shows you a great recruiting video as all recruiting officers do. Uh, mm-hmm. Alpine skiing, underwaters, all that type of stuff. And after a three-day sort of uh, Marine course, your training starts in February 2001. In your mm-hmm. opinion, what makes a good Marine? So we have... Um set of values you know cheerfulness courage uh, sorry cheerfulness in the face of adversity courage determination unselfishness all, all of those attributes do you know what i mean there, there's so much that goes into it you can be if, you, if you're like super fit but you're an asshole and you're selfish then you're not a good marine no. if you're averagely fit 
and you're always looking out for the man to your left or your right and you're proactive and you, you're smart and you think, you know, all these things combined make a good Royal Marine. But a lot of it is to do with unselfishness, in my opinion. It's, it's looking out for the guys to your left and your right. It's doing things with the mindset of it's, it's about the bigger picture, you know, and just ditching that selfishness and just holding yourself to those world-renowned Royal Marines standards in everything that you do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not wrong. Which reminds me, the Royal Marines Association of New Zealand say to say very big hi to you as well. Uh, Oh, cool. I do jiu-jitsu with a few of them and they're all like legend. Uh, You go to Iraq at the age of 19 and you don't really see any huge action and you come away a bit bit disillusioned and you decide to go and do some security work or close protection work on Civvy Street instead. Um, What was that like? Because lots of service people, uh, first responders, find that transition from what's really structured to unstructured really, really difficult. How did you find it when you were there for that brief period? You know what I did? So when I did the training, I was in South Africa, and the instructor, uh, Tim, who owns the company, on the, the day he gave us the brief, I think, I forget how many were in the course, but say there were 30, 29 of us were ex-military. And, that, and my roommate was the only civilian. He was actually the only one who beat me on the course. He came first, I came second. And Tim stood there and he said to us, being a civilian isn't a disadvantage when you do close protection work. It's an advantage because the military people have to unlearn a lot of the stuff that they've learned. Mm-hmm. Bodyguarding and close protection is about avoiding conflict, not getting involved in it and then trying to fight your way out of it. And I always remember that on that first day and it opened my mind. And literally from then, and I think having a civilian roommate really helped, my mindset was open to, you know, forget everything you've already learned and just start afresh and make that transition nice and easily. You know what I mean? So you're not stressed out or frustrated or fighting against anything. And I think that really helped me. And I just went into it from day one as a complete newbie, ready to just learn. Yeah, excellent. So you come back to the Royal Marines after a very short stint in Civvy Street. What was the transition back to being a Marine like? And did you must have caught some awful shit from your mates in the Marines when you came back. Uh, no, not really. Oh, no? It, it, was, it, it, it surprised me, right? Because I'd only been a civilian for 12 months. Yeah. Obviously, in the military, every 12 months, you have to do a fitness test, a shooting test. Um, I forget what they all are now. Like a weapons handling test, that kind of thing. So there was no need for me to go through all the training again. I just, and I could have done all this in one day, but they spread out over four weeks for some reason. I drove up there, did the shooting test, drove back, did this test, drove back, did that test. And I was back in uniform within a month and it didn't even feel like I'd left. It felt like I'd just been on extended leave. And because of the way the Marines work, you generally bounce around units every two and a half to three years. So you're never really with one group of peers for that long. And you all bombast and go all over the place. And you don't really see each other that often. So when I rejoined, I was with a complete, I think there were two people in the whole unit of 800 that I actually knew from before. So um, they weren't around to give me much shit. Nice. And I, again, I just went in open-minded, kept my mouth shut, slotted into my company, got straight into to pre-deployment training. And, uh, you know, I, I very often adopt the gray man mentality of just keep your mouth shut until you need to open it wise beyond your time uh mm-hmm. so uh, when you came back from iraq you like you said you didn't see much action there in that first tour 
were you were you a bit peeved, peeved off with it? <clears throat> yeah, and I know this it's a weird thing to say, but you go through all that training, and when you're going through that training, I'm sure every regiment in the military is the same, but you're you're constantly told that you're the best of the best. No one's better than you. You live to these high standards. And you, you do, right? So when you pass your training, you want to test that and see if it's true and see if you have what it takes. And so straight away, very early on, I kind of got excited and I thought, now I've got my chance. Now I can go out here because some people can do a 15, 20 year career. And just because of the timing of conflicts, they never deploy. So I was like, yes, I'm in my first like three years. Let me go see if I'm good enough. And then I go out to Iraq for three and a half months, come back without even firing a round. And I was like, well, that was disappointing. I didn't even come close to a skirmish. Mm. And what's the point? In, I've gone through all this training. What's the point if I'm not even going to get to use it? So, yeah, I was a little bit deflated when I came back from that first tour. But um, just threw myself straight into kind of career progression, if you like, and, and trying to develop myself as a person. Yeah. So then you get deployed to Afghanistan with what sounded like in your book, Man Down, a fairly full-on deployment compared to the Iraq <laughs> one. Yeah. 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 Um, and I'm not going to give it away, but you need to get the book because there's a true story there about somebody jumping over, uh, let's just say basically a missile coming into their base and it goes, yeah, anyway, it's just an incredible story. Uh, and then Christmas Eve 2007, you were sent out on patrol first time in a month out in the Helmand province and you're leading section two of your patrol. What I'm going to do, Mark, is because I know that you must get asked this all the time and it's possibly like I've spoken to other service people. It's the worst day of your life. It goes against everything we do as police officers to re-victimise people and you get asked all the time. What's it like to be asked continuously, oh, what did it feel like or what, what happened when you put your knee down and everything else? Does it bother you? It doesn't bother me at all. I don't like clam up or get sweaty or have you know, a flashbacks or any of that kind of stuff. I'm very fortunate in that respect. But if I'm being honest, I'm just bored of, of saying the yeah, same thing yeah, yeah. over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it doesn't affect me at all. And I, and I understand that, and I'm grateful that I'm able to do that without suffering. Yeah, and I think it's one of the the great advantages of being conscious through the whole thing. It's that I I do remember it all. I don't have things you know randomly flash back that I've forgotten in the past. I remember it all. I've lived through it all. I'm, I'm happy to always talk through it all. Um, I'm just very fortunate. I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me do it for you then. First time ever, eh? Boom. All right. The blast wave and a cone of white hot shrapnel hurled me into the air and smashed my body to pieces. The enormous power of the high explosive charge gouged a massive crater out of the hill. It was measured later at eight feet deep and 15 feet across. Shrapnel tore up my back, burning the skin as it ripped the rear plate of my body armor away, along with the camelback and day sack. Weapons and ammo were blasted in all directions, and the extra layer of mud washed over the IED while the heavy rain may have so soaked up a vital fraction of the blast that otherwise might have killed me, but I guess I'll never know. So you basically kneel or touch 100 and seven millimeter warhead, which is more than a kg of high explosive. It's enough to demo a small building. And as a result, mm -hmm. you suffer horrific injuries. Um, you, like other service people I've spoken to that have stood on an IED, you get pissed at yourself. Um, it's incredible. Mm. Yeah, uh, 
I spoke to a Green Beret a wee while ago who was really annoyed about the fact that he couldn't stand up. And he said, I was getting spewy on myself. Uh, you were rescued after asking your corporal to shoot you after you'd actually had a bit of a time to process it all. Mm-hmm. He, in the first instance, replies, no way, Rammers. We're going to get you out of here. Sit tight and don't even talk about rapping ever again. Have you or him ever spoken about it? Have you ever chatted about that moment? Or is it just gone? No, I don't. It's funny because I think with some people in some situations, there's you don't have to talk about things. You, you, you just know. You, you're connected. You vibe. And, you know, he knew that in that moment, I, I was going through something extremely traumatic. He didn't know what I was thinking, but in my mind, I was thinking about my daughter who was two years old at the time. I was thinking about the burden I'd be on people if I survived and they had to care for me. You know, and you've got to imagine like three seconds ago, I was a six foot two, 16 stone, 24 year old lump who looked after himself and was fully independent. And now all I could think of was if I survive, I'm going to just be a pain in the ass to everybody. I don't want that. Give me a hero's death. Shoot me now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was my thought process. I wasn't scared of dying. I wasn't in any pain. I wasn't feeling sorry for myself. I just was thinking about the danger I'd put my section in and the burden that I was going to be on everyone else. Mm. So after an incredible rescue where you die uh, and are brought back by some very skilled medics, you become uh, the first British trilateral amputee losing both your legs and your right arm. And in the first instance of seeing your girlfriend, who's now your wife, you ask mm-hmm. her to, you ask her to marry you and then pass out. Does she ever Correct. give you does, does she ever give you grief about that? Because shouldn't it be the bride that swoons when she gets asked, not you? <laughs> yeah, she should have passed out. <laughs> um, it was funny because you know prior to that, I had um, re- very roughly drafted out a letter to her dad, like a old school, you know, like do, would you let me propose to your daughter type thing, asking his permission. And it was in an ammo container under my bed, you know, with the day we went out on the patrol. Yeah. And for some reason, when I when I came to in the hospital in the UK. I remember feeling extremely exhausted. It was four days after the blast. And I remember lying there and I could hear people around me. And I think because of the medication, everyone, everything was echoing. And I started gagging on a feeding tube. So I was reaching for my face and I couldn't, didn't have the strength to pull the mask off. I couldn't open my eyes. And I remember lying there kind of not massively panicking, but just a bit like disorientated and trying to focus all my energy on my eyelids so I could open my eyes and make sense of where I was. And I, I couldn't do it. it. I was that exhausted. But then I could hear Becky kind of out the right-hand side of my head and she pulled the mask off. I think she got the nurse to pull the feeding tube out so I could speak. But I, I didn't even have the energy to speak. And I was kind of just very gently, you know, moving my lips and she bent right in. And then I asked, asked her to marry me and she said, did you just ask me to marry you? And I just kind of gave this little crooked smile and then boom, I was out again, just passed out. That was, took me every ounce of energy that I had just to try and mumble a few words. Legend. Um, that said though, you had lots of, and you say this in your book as well, you had lots of people around supporting you, especially your family. Um, and even though it's a horrific moment, it's really traumatic as well. There was, it sounded like there was quite a bit of humor as well. It sounds like your family is quite, 
uh, humorous, if you know what I mean. I was, as I was reading your book, the cop that I was sitting next to uh, says to me, isn't that meant to be like a really serious book? And I was laughing at bits and pieces. And I'm like, yeah, but some of the stuff that they're getting up to is just hilarious. Can you tell us the story about your dad itching your leg? Can you remember that? Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So in that first week, <clears throat> excuse me, in intensive care, they, I was there for seven days. And each day they very carefully and skillfully reduced my medication which meant I could stay awake longer and I was more aware of what was going on, but I was still hallucinating a lot. And so initially in that first day, I thought I had lost my feet so just my feet at the ankles. And I had a couple of fingers missing on my right hand. And as the days progressed, day two, day three, day four, I was realizing the severity of my injuries until like maybe day five, I realized that both my legs were missing above the knee. And then that whole realization kicked in like, oh shit, what about my meat and two veg? Now my, I had, my right arm was amputated above my elbow. I didn't know that at the time. I still thought it was just down below my elbow. My left hand, you can see the scar on my palm was heavily bandaged. So I only had two fingers and I was full of wires and tubes and everything lying on my back. So I couldn't even reach down to check for myself. So I had to get my Obanda check for me to make sure that I hadn't sustained any damage to uh, that area. Yeah. And, you know, fortunately I hadn't, I'm, I'm all good. Not no scars, no scratches. Everything works still stands to attention, still firing rounds, no blanks. Uh, we're good to go, which is why I've got two more children uh, yeah. since the incident. But yeah, um, I had to do that because I think that's every man's, worst nightmare and again like i said earlier i've been very fortunate um in in that kind of respect how many operations in total have you had to get to where you are today how many do you think i would have had well going through your book and listening to i'm gonna what was his name uh you had uh mick brennan visit you and he had 40 didn't he so i'm gonna say you're probably around the same 40 50 operations Three. Hey, there you go. All, all I had was, I think they called them debridling, which is where you go to surgery and they, they scrub all the dirt and debris out of you to stop the infections. They tidy things up and that was it. You know, they did the majority of it in the field hospital in Afghanistan. Um, they, there's a, they explained to me, like, if you look at the photographs, they could have amputated just above my knees but what they do is that if you put pressure on your skin and you see that it goes white and then you see the blood rush back to it, they do that on the flesh to see where it's dead and necrotized. And if they don't get it at the right point, then it means you've got more and more and more surgery when you get back home. Mm. So they just, they found the right place, locked them straight off above the knee, a couple of inches where it was all healthy, which meant when I came home, I just needed those tidy up operations and that was it. No, no further. Good to go. Full credit to the medics. Eh? Absolutely. Uh, so again, I'm going to quote you directly here. I was a kick-ass warfighting gravel belly and supposed to be scared of no man. When you can't do a simple thing like sit up right on your bed, it chokes you. How did you get out of that rut there? And there's a great passage in the book where you are, it's almost like you're running a marathon trying to sit yourself up in bed um, mm-hmm. and it's the first time you've done it. How did you get yourself out of that rut mentally to get with it? Honestly, you... 
you just have to celebrate the small wins. It's a hard mindset shift. Like I said, when you go from being six foot two, 16 stone, 24 years old, a green beret, commando, to taking an hour, 45 minutes to sit up in your bed and get into a wheelchair and you're drenched in sweat and you're exhausted, it's a very hard thing to digest, you know, especially in that short, that, that's like four weeks between the two. Mm. You know, I've gone from up here to down here. But if you just break it down into, you know, into micro wins and you're like, okay, cool. I'm sat up. That's a win. You know, it took me 20 minutes yesterday. It's only took me 15 today. Now it's taken me 10 minutes to get to the wheelchair. It took me 40 minutes last week. So that's a win. And then you just realize that it's just like anything. It's like military training. You know, you start on day one and you just, you just take the little wins as you get them. You're not going to join Royal Marines training. It's very unlikely you're going to join Royal Marines training and be able to do all the commando tests mm-hmm. on the first day or the first week. You build progressively up to it and you get stronger, fitter, faster, smarter. And then eventually you get to that point where you can do them and it's all manageable. And it was the same with that, with rehab. It was celebrate the small wins, break it down month by month, week by week, day by day, sometimes, you know, hour by hour, depending on what you're doing. And you just, you take those wins and you run with them and you spend very little time focusing on the failures. You look at the lessons from the failures, you apply them to the next attempt and then you get wins. What, what do you do? now when you have a shit day because you're human you're just like everybody else there must be days where you go to the gym or you're at the jiu-jitsu dojo and you're having a crap day how do you mindset your your way out of it what's your process i did that this week you know i was in the gym this morning uh, on tuesday sorry and i had a film crew with me and i'd been at a fundraiser all weekend i had to fly up to the, the north of the country a fly back I don't generally, I haven't drank alcohol for a long time, but I had like four beers um, and that affected my training. And I just felt weak and I felt rubbish. And then I felt bad because these people were filming me and I wanted to be strong and good for camera. And in the moment, you know, I was like, oh, I'm disappointed in myself. I let myself down. But then when I finished, you know, I just, as I was driving home, I was like, yeah, but you still did it. You didn't, you didn't go, okay, I'm feeling crap today. I'm going to stop. You pushed through, you persevered. You know, it, it was pretty rough to get through. It was actually, when I look back on it, a big sesh. It was a big session. And then I just celebrate the fact that I actually pushed through it. You I've know, seen, and, and that was a win. I saw some of that session on social media, <laughs> on your social media. You couldn't tell, so you're right. And I'm not blowing smoke. Oh, good. So you said here, uh, in your book, you said you felt shit about feeling shit because you were obviously um, you'd had massive trauma. You were trying to get yourself right. You weren't living to the values of the Royal Marines, like you said, and you were just feeling shit about feeling shit. Lots of service people and first responders feel this way. You know, we're the people that should be rescuing you. We're the protectors. Um, we're meant to be ten foot tall and bulletproof. Why do you think service people and first responders? struggle so much with this i feel shit about feeling shit and who can i tell you mean why do they struggle to reach out and and talk to people yeah it's just bullshit old false uh false narrative of you know if you're a bloke you've got especially in those kind of jobs 
you've you've got to be tough and strong and and you do mm. but i think where people get confused is actually talking is what takes strength and that's where they get mixed up because if something's if there's someone finds something hard to do then obviously it takes strength to go and do it but for some reason when it comes to talking about you know your thoughts your feelings or anything like that that's very hard for us to do but people think oh it's weak it's the complete opposite mm. you know what i mean and that whole message really rang home for me when I read my friend's book, uh, Jason Fox. He was an, an SBS special forces guy. And I just think, I thought to myself, this guy's been a Royal Marines commando. He's a sergeant and it takes a lot to become just a Royal Marines sergeant. Then he was special forces. He's got multiple operations under his belt. And yet he's got the courage. He's not scared to go and say, I need help. If an alpha male of that magnitude can reach out and say, I'm struggling, anybody can. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's my attitude as well. If you get guys like Jace and Ollie, uh, we have Telly here, so we know exactly who you're talking about. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. if those blokes can reach out, then there's really no reason that uh, a regular soldier or a cop or an ambulance officer can't reach out and speak to their mates and say, actually, I'm in a shit place and I need some help. So I fully get you 100%. You have mm -hmm. both a specialist and the NH NHS prosthetics expert tell you that your life is going to be in a wheelchair um when you are sort of mm -hmm. coming through your rehab and then you meet a man called sergeant mick brennan who on november 2004 has both legs blown off by a suicide bomber and is in a coma for two weeks and he gives you a morale boost and shows you your very first sea leg which is uh -huh. not, um can, can you tell us what he said to you because you were in a rock bottom place weren't you yeah i've been told about four or five days before that i'd never have success with prosthetics. And then it was explained to me by this expert that if you're missing, well, in his experience, most people missing just one leg above the knee never had success with prosthetics because they were too painful, too difficult to use, and they took too much energy. So they just didn't bother. And then he said, well, you're missing both your legs above the knee and your dominant arm. So you've got zero chance. And then Mick came in to visit me unannounced. Didn't know he was coming. No one had told me. I don't even think he told anybody. And he walked in as a double above knee amputee. He had both his arms, but he was still missing both his legs above the knee. And he came in and he talked me through his entire, like four hours, five hours through the entire process of how he got from a hospital bed to being a prosthetic user, to being a para athlete, to being a father, to still serving in the army and what the process was like, how the legs fitted, how they worked, the technology involved, what the highs were, what the lows were, what I was going to struggle with. He took me through all of that kind of stuff. And then literally after that, I was on cloud nine. You know, I knew it would be different for me because I had lost my dominant arm. Mm. So I was going to have to make some adjustments. But I had physically seen somebody walking into my room wearing prosthetics after being told that it wasn't an issue. Uh, it wasn't going to be a possibility, sorry. And then once, you, once I physically saw it, I was like, cool. All I've got to do is, you know, it's like starting training again. I'm going to start from day one, week one. I'm going to build, 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 build. And then eventually I'll be fully independent. Yeah. And there is, there is cheapest chips as well, your prosthetics, aren't they? Yeah, about £90,000 for a pair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, uh, yeah, I, when yeah. I read about them on a, an article, I was just like, holy mother of God. Um, yeah. After that, your goal 
is to, uh, once you go into Headley Court, the Marines put you into Headley Court for rehab, is to make the parade ground and go to Norton Manor for your uh, medal presentation to get your operational service medal. <coughs> Did you ever think at any stage when you were doing the rehab, because I've seen people doing rehab, not for injuries as bad as yours, but for some fairly bad injuries, and there are real big lulls and troughs and everything else. Was there ever any stage you thought, you know what, I'm not going to make it? I won't make I won't make the parade. Pretty much every day. Yeah. It was, it's, I mean, I could spend hours and hours talking about this, but my personal experience when I was learning to walk again was that it was brutal, like unbelievably brutal. Like my groin was cut. There were blisters on the end of my legs because of the alignment changes. My back always felt like it was going to snap. I was exhausted. It's 300 to 500% more energy for me to do anything. I only had one arm to do everything with. So my whole, my brain was readjusting now to, to use a different arm. It was just, every day was just brutal. And I'd go to bed every night, wiped out, completely wiped out. And then I have to get up again, start again. But I adopted that same mindset of micro wins, 1% gains. And then I just thought to myself, if I can keep on this, trajectory by the time it rocks around i'll put in that extra effort because of the day but then that's it that's me done for like four or five days and i'll take that big rest period and just recuperate before going back to rehab again yeah and yeah i mean like most of the time i thought this i'm not gonna be able to do this this is too hard it's not even just like wearing a uniform instead of shorts and t-shirt was a massive thing um but we stuck to the plan and I had that support around me, people encouraging me daily, you know, focusing my attention on what I was doing good and not what I could do, what I was doing bad, but how I could change what I was doing bad and then making those changes. And then the day came around and that was just everything. That was my sole attention for that, that short time period was to just make sure that I did that and achieve that goal. If I'd said to you then that there's going to be a day where you have, and this is your current situation, I guess, no adaptations to your car or to your house, mm -hmm. what would you have said to me, do you think? I probably would have smiled on the outside because yeah. I would like the thought of that. But inside, I would probably be thinking it's not possible. Yeah. Like everything's too hard. You know, and I, every time I always do these podcasts or talks on stage and share my story and I've never really drilled down into just how hard it was. And I'm talking like soul destroying to the point where I, I you know, a couple of times I was in tears at, at night, just wondering how the hell I'm going to be able to get through the next day. You know, when before I could run, jump, climb, crawl, hump for hours on end, big weight on my back, do anything. You know, I was a martial artist, kickboxing, loads of wins under my belt and all this stuff. And now I couldn't walk from my bed to the door of my hospital room mm -hmm. without needing to sit down. It was, it was brutal. But, you know, we got, we got through it in the end. And every day, like anything, any athlete will tell you that's training for a competition. Every day it gets a bit easier. You're making that progress. And then eventually, you know, you cross that line and, and what used to be hard becomes the easy, the norm. Yeah. And I guess, again, from reading your book, there's a lot of stuff that because you are who you are and you are what you are, you mentally have to break 
things down. Um, so it might be something like getting into a car or going up a flight of stairs or something. You have to obviously do it in a different way from everybody else. So you have to almost unpack what everybody else is thinking and work on your own plan. Do you find that mentally draining? Or have you, have you got most scenarios covered off now? It, it used to be mentally draining in the beginning. And that was another big part of it, as well as the physical energy expenditure, the mental expenditure was, was high as well, just trying to figure everything out. And like you say, readjust for everything and, you know, change my life to, to flow around all that stuff. It just used to drain you mentally. And I still have to be quite conscious, if you like, about, you know, where, when I go out walking, you know, because there's crazy ladies with buggies and new moms and, you know, people with shopping trolleys and everyone's looking down at their phone these days, just walking on a bearing without yeah. looking where they're going. And there's different cambers of roads and different terrains and environments. So I don't, in the moment so much, I don't have to think about it as much, but maybe in the planning process, you know, if I want to go out somewhere with the family, I have to think, okay, what's the terrain going to be like? You know, yeah. maybe I need to take different prosthetics. Do, do, even down to the point where, you know, do I need to have a, a high carb breakfast to give me the energy to get through that morning into a lunchtime? Yeah. Do I need to drink extra water to stay hydrated? That kind of stuff. If I ask Becky if you get cranky, she'd say yes or no. When you don't, I'm, I'm like any man. When I'm hungry, then just get out of my way. Just feed me. Nice, good work. Now speaking of prosthetics, <laughs> there is lots and lots of different variations. Um, there's obviously your running blades, which you um, did your five k run on. You have mm -hmm. your sea legs. You've got your stubbies, which you use quite a bit um, when you're in the yep. gym, I'm, I'm assuming. And natural, no prosthetics. Which do you prefer? Well, I hate the running prosthetics. Yeah. I, I just hate running. So they get put in there. I don't even know where they are. They're in a cupboard somewhere now. Um, the walking prosthetics, the everyday ones, are great for I'm going to say speed for, for getting things done and, and just living as normal life as possible. I've got the stubbies on right now. I came home earlier. They're almost like slippers. So now I can go about, because I'm quite tired now from the jujitsu and working all day. I can almost switch off a little bit now and not have to worry about falling. And when the kids come home from school in a minute, um, cut around the house and then no prosthetics is nice because it's comfy. You know, you can lie down and, be super comfy and tarring easily and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, just normal. Yeah. So when I mentioned some of the other men that you've mentioned in your book that have had seen similar trauma to yourself, so Ben Parkinson, Ben mm -hmm. McBean, Tom Neathway, Sam Cooper, Mick Brennan, what do you think it is, apart from the obvious, that they all have in common when it comes to their mindset? And I throw, obviously, I throw your name in there as well. What is it that makes these they are warriors just not give up i just think it's you know what you have to go through to pass military training anyway you know I, I always i get a lot of people that want to join the royal marines reach out to me and ask me for advice and they, they think i'm going to give them fitness advice i'm like they'll teach you how to be fit mm. you know what i mean but you've got to be able to be cold wet sleep deprived food deprived you know, when you want to just quit, you've got to find that bit in you just to keep going and push on that a little further. That's what you get exposed to when you go through military training. 
And that's why I think they have such success when when this happened, because it's just like, it's, it's almost like, okay, like I said earlier, I'm back at day one of training now, but now I'm training myself to walk again and be independent. So I know it's going to be hard. I know I'm going to be sleep deprived, tired, cold, wet, sweaty, cranky, sore. I know that. I just have to push through that until it becomes, you know, normal, if you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not wrong. Do you think it's just that discipline and routine and just the fact that you have had hardship in the past and you think, you know what, this is just another challenge. Once you get past all the trauma and the, the sort of horror of what's happened and everything else, do you just think it's that military sort of warrior mindset of that's where I need to go, so that's what I'm doing? I think so, but it's not that military warrior mindset of, you know, con- aggression, mm. stacks of smoke straight up the middle. It's, it's almost <laughs> like a smart, calculated, controlled aggression. Yeah, You know, it's like, right, this is what i got to do. Here's my plan. Let's do it. Get out of the way. But in a controlled way, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. So then in May 2009, you get married to Becky. Uh, yeah, you now have three kids. What would Becky say is your most endearing character trait? If I asked her, oh, good god, um, I don't know. Oh, there you go. I don't you'll, know what she would say. You'll have to ask her an email. My humility, <laughs> <laughs> legend, legend. That's All right. Um, can you tell us the story about how you heard about Cameron Clapp and Dream Team Prosthetics and what happened next? So after Mick came to visit me in hospital, I got a laptop brought in my room. I got connected to the internet and I started doing my own research on people like Mick. And I was really looking for a triple amputee because of the arm thing. And I quite quickly found Cameron over in America. And he, he I read his story. He was hit by a train when he was 15. He was what I'd call a stereotypical Californian, long blonde <laughs> hair, surfer dude, you know, really laid back. And I just remember watching these videos like in amazement at this guy who just was taking this thing, which was destroying me mentally and physically learning to walk. And he just made it look so easy. And I was like, because back then in my mind, I was like, I'm a Royal Marine. I'm one of the fittest people on the planet. And this civilian is absolutely destroying this prosthetic game. And I don't like that. If he can do that, I should be able to fly. You know what yeah. I mean? Because that was my ego back then. Yeah. But he just made everything look easy. But it was encouraging. So I thought, well, again, I've seen this physically done. If this guy can do that, so can I. All I need to do is find out what he's done physically and mentally, who he's surrounded himself with and what they've done to contribute. I need to go and get similar. And so that's what I did. You know, I ended up contacting Cameron, introducing myself. I met his team, dream team. We, I flew out there a month after I was married and went through a three-week boot camp and they just whipped my ass like solid for three weeks. No wheelchair, no carers, nothing. And they just said, you have to come on your own, leave your wheelchair at home. And by the end of the three weeks, you won't need it. And you didn't, did you? No, but it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. Like normally back in the UK, if I got up in the morning and my legs were sore, I might have rehab in the afternoon. So I'd spend the morning in my wheelchair, just recovering and, and being comfortable. But out there, I had to get up in the morning and just like ease into my prosthetics. It's almost like having your feet covered in blisters and then having to put on a pair of shoes that are maybe two sizes too small for you. 
and then walk around all day. And you just had to toughen yourself up to it, you know, and it was something that I was familiar with from all Marines training. Yeah. I just knew, you know, I had to just get my body to adjust to it. Then my mind would adjust to it. And then again, like I said, what was hard before now becomes your baseline and, and it's easy. Yeah, because I've seen some footage of you getting ready to do your run and falling over. And you're obviously, you were training with Ben, was it? Doing yep. your run? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and you fall over and nobody offers to even pick you up. You just sort of pick yourself up. Everybody's like, are you okay, Mark? Is that something you learned from Cameron or is that just something you do yourself all the time? Don't pick me up. I've got myself sorted. I'll get myself up. So they taught me, uh, Cameron and his team, they taught me how to be independent, so how to not need that. And it's not from any sort of like angry, disabled man perspective, like, let me no. go. I don't need your help. Yeah. It was just, you need to learn how to live independently in case this happens and there's no one around. But what's funny is that you, you learn these techniques about how to get up and how to negotiate these obstacles. And in the nicest possible way, it's almost a pain in the ass when people want to help you. Because they'll grab you and they'll rip you up and you're like, whoa, slow down. This is not how it works. You, know, yeah. you don't understand prosthetics. If you do yeah. that, I'm just going to hit the deck again and you're going to hurt me. Just if I need you, I will ask you. And I'm not too arrogant as if to go, I'll do it on my own. If I need help, I will definitely ask for it. But it's so much easier if you just give me the space I need and let me go through my step-by-step -step process and technique. And then we're good. Yeah. You know, and it's... um. That's what we did. You, you saw the video. I just All I needed was to get into like a triangle position and then slowly spider walk my hand back and I was up. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was watching it with a co-worker and she was like, why doesn't somebody help that poor man? I'm like, because he hasn't asked for it yet. So yeah, yeah, yeah exactly right. Um, and that would be a fantastic story in itself if that's where we left the Mark Ormrod story, but it's not really, is it? Because <laughs> yeah, here we go. Um, right, so... You take part in the activist games. Um, initially, when somebody said to you disabled sports, apparently you said you thought that disabled sports would be kind of patronising. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Again, I was younger then, yeah. and I, I come from being a Royal Marine. You know, I was a martial artist. I'd only ever lost one competition in, I think, 12 or 13 fights, boxed for the Marines at heavyweight. And then people were telling me about disabled sports, and all I could think of was like, botcher you know sitting in a wheelchair and rolling that little beanbag on the floor and i'm like are you serious you think yeah. i'm going to go from being an elite soldier to rolling beanbags on the floor i'm not doing it no way yeah. and i just did my own thing to keep fit yeah so in 2017 you go to the invictus games <clears throat> you pick up the jaguar award for exceptional performance the determination and dedication you win two silver medals two bronze and then in 2018 you're there in the sydney games i believe uh, mm -hmm. where you win seven medals, four golds, including uh, what's become like an absolute sort of milestone memory for the Invictus Games, where you race Gary Robinson in the ISA 50-meter breaststroke final to avoid the race being cancelled. Can you tell mm -hmm. us about your prep for that race? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll tell you a little bit of the story behind it. So I'd met Gary in the Australian team the year before in Canada, and one of their coaches, bizarrely enough, is from Plymouth here. His parents yeah. live about 15 minutes from my house. So we immediately had that rapport and we built up a good friendship in Canada. And the day when, when we started the swimming, because 
me and Gary were in such a low classification. We didn't have to do any of the heats, right? Everyone else is competing for the finals. We go straight to the final. So I'm sat with, with him and the coach watching the heats. And I was asking, you know, what, what events have you got on? Because I was in the 50 and the 100 meter freestyle, I think. So he started telling me, you know, free, 50 meter freestyle, 100 meter freestyle, backstroke, breaststroke. And uh, then he said, oh, he's the only one doing the breaststroke. Now, because I had not really done disabled sports or anything like that, I just assumed that because he was the only one doing it, that he would be the gold medalist. So I was like, oh, that's brilliant. You've already got a gold medal then. So his coach says, no, it doesn't work that way. You have to have at least two people in the race or they'll cancel it. And it, literally, the minute he said that, we're watching the heats and I looked up in the crowd and there's thousands of people screaming and cheering for these people racing. And I just thought, all these people have come from all over the world to watch some competition. I said, I'm here. I'm in, a, in other races. So I just said to their, to their coach, Neil, I said, look, if you go and speak to the judges now, if they allow it, if it's not too late, I'll jump in the race. Gary's trained for it. These people have come to see it. We'll, we'll put on a show and uh, we'll give it a go. So he came back like two minutes later and said, they said, that's fine. So I was like, brilliant. <laughs> so we turned up the next day for the finals and there was a 25 meter practice pool uh, at the end of the 50 meter competition pool. And I got in it and I'd never done breaststroke before. So I tried how I used to breaststroke with two arms. Mm -hmm. and, and as you imagine, I went around in a circle. So then I developed literally some real weird breaststrokey scoop type thing that propelled me forward and did that for 25 meters. And then the, the tannoy said, right, to the start lines. So I got out the, the practice pool after 25 meters, got to the, uh, the blocks, and then me and Gary, we jumped in and raced, and we, we did a 50-meter uh, breaststroke. Yeah, insane. Um, you talk in your book about sitting on the edge of your bed and the whole balance factor because you know you're missing your limbs and trying to balance yourself and everything else. Mm -hmm. I, you're obviously now a very accomplished swimmer, and we'll talk about that in a second. But what was it like for you the first time you went into a pool or into the sea and went for your very first swim? That must have been terrifying. So I, I'll tell you what it was. <clears throat> Excuse me. I used to be a... I would call myself a confident, strong swimmer when I have mm -hmm. both my legs and my arms. <clears throat> and I hadn't swam for a number of years after I'd lost my legs. And one day I was just, I was in a phase when I was playing around, seeing what kind of things I could do to keep my health and fitness up. And I thought I'm going to try swimming. So I went to a swimming pool on a naval base at lunchtime, sat on the, in the middle of the shallow end, plopped myself in the pool and just started swimming. Right, trying how I would before, even though I don't have two arms, I was going through the motions. And I got dead set in the middle of the pool and I started to get tired and fatigue. So I pulled my head and I, I let out a huge breath and I instantly started to sink and, and I shit myself because mm -hmm. that never used to happen to me when I had legs and both arms. I, I could sit there and hold a conversation all day long and, and not sink. And I started to sink. So I threw my head back and there was no one else in the pool. I was the only swimmer. And I don't know why I did it or nothing really told me that this was the right thing to do. But I just kind of, as I threw my head back and the water got over my eyes and my mouth, I managed to breathe some air in through my nose. And I instantly knew, even though I was panicking, 
that that was keeping me afloat because I'd put air back in my lungs. And so I literally straightened my head up, kept that air in my lungs. My heart was going like crazy because I was so tired. And I just kind of slowly went, not to let too much air out, but to keep air coming in so I could breathe, but keep my, my lungs inflated. And I dragged myself to the side of the pool. I got out and I didn't swim for about four years after that because it just panicked me. And I thought it was just a bizarre experience. You know, I, I knew then that I had to have air in my lungs all the time. Mm. And, and, you know, I, I would guess about 20, 25% filled with air for me to be able to swim, um, which is one of the reasons why when I did swim at the Invictus Games, if you watch most of the time I'm underwater, I, I trained myself to swim 30 meters underwater because I thought that was my best chance of winning. <laughs> well, it's held, held you in good stead. Um, and then you meet Colour Sergeant Sam Sheriff, who I'm trying to get on the podcast, and you've got to put a good word in for me. Uh, who's yeah. uh, an ex-PTI, well, he's PTI in the Marines, and he introduces you to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Right now, I took up Brazilian yeah. Jiu-Jitsu at the age of 47 <clears throat> after doing Aikido and Krav Maga and everything else. Um, it's one of those things. People who don't do Jiu-Jitsu can't understand the mental release, the physicality of it. Um, what somebody said, it's trying to like trying to wrestle an octopus while you're solving a Rubik's cube uh, smeared in Vaseline. It's 100 percent true. <laughs> but, um, why why is it so important to you? Why is jujitsu so important to Mark? You know what, my my background growing up, we said this earlier, my childhood hero was John Claude Van Damme. Mm. I used to train and compete in kickboxing and Muay Thai and I loved it. You know, I used to show off doing the splits and, and all this stuff. And I was always working to be fitter and stronger. And I was winning competitions all the time. But I really loved the, you know, like you see in the, like the Japanese martial arts films where they, they meditate and they have to they drink the special tea and it's all tradition and honor and respect and mm. integrity. I loved all that side of it. And I thought I had lost that part of my life that, you know, I'd looked into doing Tai Chi and all sorts when I'd lost my legs. Cause I thought I just need martial arts in my life. Mm -hmm. And I had a bunch of people offer me to train in different disciplines, but I knew from my background that it wasn't possible. And that if I wanted to progress through the belt system, it would have all been through sympathy rather yeah. than hard work. And when Sam approached me, he was, he was a, senior rank in the Royal Marines. He was a physical training instructor. He was the head of Royal Marines on armed combat. He ran the Royal Marines Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Association, combat veteran, extremely established. He was a powerful belt at the time. He was the, the Royal Marines, the military's first ever serving black belt. I was like, okay, I'll give this guy the benefit of the doubt. And I'd done Japanese Jiu-Jitsu when I was younger, but I had no idea what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was. So I was just kind of humoring him. I was like, okay, mate, let's go. We'll go down and we'll do a little bit. And I went down there and after that first session, I'm like, what is this? This isn't what I did when I was a kid. I was doing all these break falls and rolling and jumping over people and, and doing wrist locks and throws. And I'm like, we're scrapping on the ground like it's Friday night down at the pub. Yeah. And he went, no, this is grappling. This is ground fighting. And I was like, well, I can do this based on hard work and effort then because we're already on the ground. So I don't have to worry about that. And everything, even the, the limited things he showed me in that first session, he showed me how they quote unquote should be done and then how I could adapt them. And I thought, this is brilliant. You know, I, I can do this and I've got martial arts back in my life now. 
and it just meant the world to me, you know, that, that was back in my life and it was, you know, a large part of it again, you know, and it's um, like you said just now, unless you've done it, it's hard to understand it, but it just brings so much to your life, you mm. know, both on the mat and off the mat, mm. uh, especially as a, a disabled person, mm. you know, the, the way it opens your mind to all the, what your body can really do and, and the bits that you just take for granted, like your shoulders, for example, mm. you know, I never thought you could ever choke somebody out with your shoulder. Mm-hmm. And once I realized that I realized there's a million things I can do on my shoulder. Like I can carry things with my shoulder. Right. Now I've only yeah. got one hand yeah. and it makes me more efficient, you know, yeah. and, and it was just brilliant. What it, what it brings to my life. All right. <laughs> if, I, uh, if I asked uh, the prof, uh, what's Max go to submission? What would he say? Probably not brushing his teeth and drinking loads of coffee and breathing on him. <laughs> no, that'll, it'll be an arm triangle. That'll work. Arm triangle from the mount. Nice, good work. All right, all good. And as uh, he obviously introduces you to reorg, which has become a huge integral part of your life as well, um, and mm-hmm. something I fully support. Um, I'll send you up a picture of me in the in the brand new Coyote Brown Hyperfly Gee. Um, nice. What was it that attracted you to Real? Because look, let's be honest, I know that you do lots of work for loads of other different charities. You do amazing fundraisers and everything else, but Reorg's really struck a chord with you, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, so while Sam was serving, I think we trained together for about two and a half, three years while he had established Reorg. And as he was coming to the end of his career, you know, he left in April this year, actually, after 22 years we were having conversations after training. I'm like, what are you going to do when you leave? What are you going to do with reorg? And he's like, I'm just going to hand it over to one of the other PTIs and they can run with it. And I was like, look, mate, that won't work. This is your baby, your train set. You were the one with the vision. You've built it to this. Nobody will put the passion, the time, the effort and dedication into this to grow it. Like you have, and look at how many lives it's affected already while you've been balancing it with a full-time job and a family. You know, your, your attention's everywhere at the minute and you still built this phenomenal thing which is changing and saving people's lives. Mm. You have to do this as, as a career. And he was very, very uncomfortable with it. It took a lot of people a lot of time to convince him, months and months and months of loads of us saying, you need to do this when you leave. You need to do this when you leave. You need to do this when you leave. And eventually he crumbled and he's like, right, okay, we'll do it. So they incorporated as a charity only in October. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year and I said I'll help you to do whatever we can to, to build this to grow this and he very kindly offered me a position as a trustee uh, which I do with two other people and it's just I don't know what, what I love about obviously I love the training but as a military man what I love about the jiu-jitsu community is it's the closest that I found to the military community in terms of camaraderie. And because you, again, what we, we talked about going through shared hardships earlier, mm-hmm. it's just the same when you, the first day you step on that mat as a white belt and you're trying to body slam and WWE everybody, and you're just using strength and you're breathing out your ass and you're getting turned over by a 15 year old who weighs six stone. He's beating your ass. You go through all those journeys together and you go to the blue belt and you go and stripe by stripe by stripe. You, you've got so much in common because you're all going through this journey together and, and it that creates a, a unique bond, you know, and that's what I love about it too. You, you're on the match, you're training, 
you're coaching, encouraging and, and helping each other progress. But then outside of that as well, mm. you know, you can pick up the phone to these guys and girls like you could in the military and they've got time for you. They genuinely care about you and they genuinely want to help you and be around you. Yeah. You know, and that's a big, big thing for me. Yeah. And I don't think you and Sam have got quite any idea of how huge that spread for reorg is. To give you some idea, I've got some real gear, which if you want to see something really interesting, try and put the postage to New Zealand on reorg stuff. It'll bankrupt you almost in a second. But long oh, story, really? yeah, long story short, it doesn't matter because that's not what it's about. It's about a cause. Um, I've had people, complete random strangers who I have, who I don't train with, and others who I have trained with, said, come up to me and pointed at my shirt and said, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be here. That literally saved my life. So full, mm -hmm. full kudos <laughs> to you both uh, and everybody else that's involved with it. So you decide you're going to do some fundraising. It starts off as shaving some hair, which. Mate, I could have yep. given that. I could have given you that for free. <laughs> um, you raise over 150k doing a 5k uh, run, and then May 2021, you do a 1k swim, which raises over 400,000 um, pounds. You get stung in the face by a jellyfish. Um, you've still got your 99.9 .9 mile bike ride coming up, have you? Correct. Yep. When's that happen? It's going to be the second week of October now. Right. Okay. Um, We'll yeah, keep an eye I on think it. The... And your goal is to raise £750,000 all up. It's, do, you feel, do you feel like an inspiration? No. And I, I, I'm, that's not, you know, false modesty or anything like that. No. It's, I just, the, the messed up thing, right, is that I'm just doing what I enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing, I'm not, yeah, some of it's quite challenging, but I, I love it. I've well, got my coach, Ben. You know, one of my best mates who's an ex-Marine physical training instructor who spends loads of time with me, training me, making me better. We're going out, we're doing good things. We've got a little team of people that are all about the cause and reorg and, and doing good things. I'm just having a good time. Mm. You know what I mean? And if you can do that, if you can surround yourself with great people that you want to be around, you can have a good time and you can do some good. You've cracked the code. Mm. Yeah, you're not wrong either. If it's not, if it doesn't seem like work, you've got it made, haven't you? Exactly. Uh, so just because you're the underachiever of the year, you get an honors, honorary master's degree in sports science from Plymouth Margin University. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, they're still making a film about you. They're going to make the Correct. film. Yep. yep. Mm -hmm. You've you've had your documentary film, No Lim Limbits, uh, which <clears throat> check it. You can get that. You can have a look at that on YouTube. Uh, you made an MBE in the Queen's Birthdays Honour 2020 for services to Royal Marines and veterans. You're an Olympic torchbearer. You get the BBC Southwest Sports Personality in 2018. So to the person that's sitting on their sofa who's overweight or to the person <laughs> with, a, with a bad back who says, I can't do it, or the person who's lost a limb, what would you say to them? Apart from the obvious, get off your ass and get moving. I think I would just say, have a little bit more faith in yourself. You know, I, I just, my personal opinion is that, I think a lot of people are mega unaware of this, is that we are just surrounded by negativity. You know, from the news to the garbage, like Love Island and stuff you watch on TV, to the morons on social media that are trolling people. Mm -hmm. And it, and it has an effect on our confidence and our self-worth. But if you just take a minute to 
acknowledge that and understand that you can do something about it mm. and you, and you can flip the script. And then once you've, once you've done that and you're, I guess, flooding your mind with more positivity and more things that empower you, you know, then that bad back doesn't seem like such a challenge because you can figure out a way to train around it, like go swimming or do low impact cardio work. Or if you're overweight, losing that weight doesn't seem like that much of a challenge. In fact, it feels like a privilege that you have the opportunity to go out and to be able to move, move your body still and take it to somewhere where it performs at its peak. Mm. You know, it's, it's all about just mindset. And, you know, once you realize how much negativity you're, you're digesting on a daily basis, either consciously or unconsciously, you can change that, mm. you know, and, and start getting more of the good stuff. Okay. All right. So last two questions for you. Here's, here's the big one. It's something we always do with this podcast. The day of reckoning has come for Mark Ormrod and you are lying in your casket. But strangely enough, you can hear what the person's saying about you at your own service. What would you like them to say about you? I would like them to say that... I don't know if this sounds like arrogant or what, but I would like them to say that his the things he did in life and the legacy he created will live on for a long time after he's gone. Hmm. I think they will to be fair as well. Full respect. All right. So uh, if we want to follow you on social media, you're all over it, aren't you? So you've got Twitter, you've yep. got Instagram, yep. TikTok. Um, there's some great uh -huh. questions. Loving those questions on TikTok. They're bloody awesome. Yeah. Pick that up. Uh, what else have you got, Mark? YouTube? LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, markhomrod.com. I do have a podcast, the No Limits yes, podcast, but I have not recorded an episode for quite some time now. Um, yeah, and I think those are all the platforms. Covered. And it's all just your name, isn't it? At Mark Ormrod. Right, yeah, yeah, they're all the same. Cool. All right. Mate, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I know that you are extremely, extremely busy. So I really appreciate you taking out the time to talk to the Kiwis. My pleasure, mate. Thank you. All right, mate. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Right, take care. Thanks for listening. But please do Constable Brian and I a favour and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next Coppuccino podcast. Real people, real stories.